welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by the host of the Risk of Ruin podcast, John Reader. John, thank you very much for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Today I am joined by the host of the Risk of Ruin podcast, John Reader. John, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I stumbled across your show uh, a while back now, and, and each episode is, is fascinating from typical casino advantage play through to points and miles and, and getting new credit cards to, to find an edge there. And I think the, uh, well, your your Twitter handle kind of summed it up uh, at half Kelly on Twitter and just the, the nature of things we've discussed over the years on podcasts fits in really well with, with what you're doing. So it's going to be fun to, to dig into some of that. And um, I'm just curious, how did you, how did you get led into the podcast gambling space because it's it's usually a place where there's only negative feedback and it's really hard to be interesting and you've obviously broken a few of those barriers already oh well <laughs> thank you um yeah so i'm basically just like a small-time recreational gambler um like we go we live in southern california so we go to vegas you know semi-regularly or maybe a number of times per year and so we would just go and i would you know play recreational and never like, you know, probably not since I've been 20 years old or something, have I bet an amount that I would even notice at the end of the year. Um, but I did notice that, you know, the more I went, uh, the more uncomfortable I became with losing. And so I didn't like that part of it. And I also, you know, I have kind of a mind where uh, I like to work on things. And, um, and then the other thing was, um, just being in the casino, I have a real problem with authority. So I don't like it if I feel like I'm at a disadvantage, um, that like that, that, you know, conflicts with the part of my personality that has a problem with authority. And so I started to learn how to count cards. Um, and so that was the thing I just thought, well, you know, if I learn how to count cards, it'll hopefully number one is I won't have to think that if I'm in the casino, I'm only an underdog. Um, and also it'll give me something to do in the casino, you know, because it's more of an activity. You're not just sitting in front of a slot machine, pushing a button. Um, so I did that. I started, I started to learn how to count cards at first. I did it on my own. Um, and then eventually I joined up with uh, blackjack apprenticeship and that actually was somewhat helpful just because they have it. It's so streamlined the way that they teach you there. Um, and so then I did that. I just go out and, you know, if we're on vacation, I go out and I count cards, you know, like the people we travel with, they'll play, you know, slot machines and my wife will play other table games and I'll, you know, count cards or do other things in the casino where, you know, at least I don't feel like I'm at a disadvantage. And that's, that's kind of how I got started. Um, but I've always kind of been like, the, just the way my brain works, I'm always interested in things like, you know, come up with a hypothesis make a prediction and then, you know, deal with the fallout of whether you were right or wrong. Like that's just a, the part of thinking that naturally appeals to me. So like over the years I've done things like, you know, like a few years ago I was into shorting Tesla 
um, which probably will sound crazy to anybody, but this was actually <laughs> at a, <laughs> this was at a time when you, know, you weren't purely getting your face ripped off from shorting Tesla. Um, and so, and I actually had made money doing it and, and, and I had actually traded both long and short Tesla, um, but mostly short. Um, but, uh, but I did notice that I, you know, as it went on, I noticed that there was so little correlation between what I expected to happen in terms of the price action and what would actually happen that eventually I just stopped because I realized I didn't have an edge doing it. And so I just said, you know, it doesn't make any sense to just go out here and basically flip coins against the market. And so I did that. And then also I'll say I, my job, my, like my wife always says that my job is basically gambling. So I, I sell land to developers. And so the things like, um, you know, monetary outcomes that can swing wildly, um, having to make a prediction. And then, you know, if you are right, you make money. And if you're wrong, you lose money. Um, you know, that's sort of part of my everyday life. It seems like there's so many more industries than I certainly thought growing up, which is basically gambling. You know, you just talked about then, but obviously a lot of the Wall Street stuff and, and trading and some of those areas can be just straight out gambling and others can be sort of risk adjusted is, is what you hear all the time. And you can sort of have uh, caps on liability and stuff like that. But it is interesting that more and more we get into fields that are straight gambling. But tell me a little bit more about when you're on vacation and you want to spend time in casino, I'm guessing a lot of people out there will probably see that time as, as fun time, as vacation time, and let's go and throw some chips on the craps table and see if we can, you know, hit a, a hard eight a few times or some of that type of thing. But it seems like the, the mindset to want to do that on vacation, it obviously clearly permeates through not only your, you know, everyday life and, and everyday trips to a casino, but uh, you know, the fun times you can still have an advantage maybe or, or break even on card counting. And that's something you want to do. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I just like, I just, I have always have to have something to do. Um, you know, so it's like, if I'm just sitting there, I'll, I'll be bored. Um, and I can sort of pretend like I'm having fun. Um, and I've done all that stuff before, you know, I've played craps, um, and had fun doing it and, or whatever. I mean, you know, almost every game in the casino I've played, uh, you know, just for recreation, but it just got to a point where I just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't very interesting to me anymore. And so then, yeah, it's like, uh, I mean, I will say it's somewhat odd to go out and do some of these things, um, rec uh, you know, when, when you're with people and they're there for recreation and you go count cards and you get backed off and they ask you to not <laughs> play, <laughs> they say, you know, no more blackjack. Um, and then the people you're with have so, somewhat of an odd reaction to that. And so, and, and, you know, there are times where I have to be somewhat careful because it's like, you know, we might be somewhere and everybody else is there to have fun. And if I get asked to leave, um, you know, that's not going to be fun for everybody. So I do have to be somewhat careful about that. Um, but, you know, it's just, I guess the, the only way I can put it is it's something to do. Fair enough. No, it's a, it's a good point. So tell me about learning to count cards because I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about, A, how they actually go about doing it. I mean, I'm guessing you read books and then you get a deck of cards out at home and you start practicing the counting stuff. But tell me how you learnt and also do you find utility in that in other parts of your life outside of just being able to use it at the table? Um, well... It, 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 sort of let me I guess let me answer the first part uh, 
now that you know every there's software for everything it's like incredibly easy to learn to count cards i mean i would never have done it probably if i had to get out a physical deck of cards and actually count um but it's like you know i have an app on my phone um that where i can if i have five minutes i can sit there and uh, play blackjack and count cards so that part is pretty easy um you know there's this blackjack apprenticeship uh you know the actual counting is super easy. It's, you know, plus one, minus one, plus one, minus one. Um, and then you have to do a little bit of simple division uh, just to get from, you know, what they call a running count to a true count. And then after that, it's really mostly memorization and, and basically muscle memory. So it, the actual learning is not that difficult. Anybody could learn. You know, they say that, you know, you could teach a, you could teach a monkey to count cards. Um, that's not the difficult part. It's all of the other stuff that goes with card counting that's difficult. Um, and the people that do it professionally, you know, they have to deal with lots of um, lots of challenges that that aren't really related to just the counting. Um, so so that's um, that's how I learned is just with software. And uh, now, as far as has it helped anything else, um, you know, I think the probably just understanding how much uh, risk even advantage gamblers have to deal with is probably the biggest thing that I've learned through card counting. Because, you know, if you have a, let's say you have a very small edge of like one and one and a half percent, well, you're basically flipping coins against the house, right? Like, um, and you can lose a lot of coin flips. So the swings on something like that, if you have a small edge will be dramatic. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing. And, And that would go with anything, you know, if you're if you're betting sports, um, but you have a very small edge, um, you know, you're going to have dramatic swings. Um, and so I, I'd say that that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned from card counting, where you can apply it to something else. You know, you can um, you, you can know that uh, any game where you have a small edge, there are going to be a lot of losses. Would you ever suggest to someone to, to have that skill set in their back pocket, either to use it on vacation or work trips when they're at casinos or nearby casinos or staying in casinos? Or is it something that's maybe left to a certain kind of person um, who, you know, is inclined that way to learn that skill and and actually use it? Well, I I mean, it sort of depends, right? Like, I mean, it kind of depends on what kind of person you are. Um, Because it's not that difficult to do. I mean, and and it's also not expensive to do, you know, like, the the app that I use, I think it's like $6 or something. And that will get you, um, you know, it will at least get you to like basic competency um, so that you actually know kind of what things are. And then from there, you could decide how serious you want to get. Um, but I, I will say this, uh, you know, the other people that I know that know I do this have zero interest in doing it. You know, it's like, like if we're at a casino, they're like, uh, yeah, knock yourself out with, you know, whatever you think you're doing, uh, we'll be over here having fun, you know? So (laughs) I think that it would be, uh, it really kind of depends on the kind of person you are. Yeah. I'm guessing part of the, a lot of people tell me the, the reason we're wired to gamble is that something's at risk. It's not necessarily winning and or losing that drives us. It's the fact that something's at risk and, I think going into a casino and card counting and having a between 1% edge and 1% you know negative, depending how well you do it, um, that element of why we do things may be lost a little bit. Do you find that it's a different experience, let's say card counting versus doing some other stuff in the casino? Well, I think for most people, they would just find it to be miserable. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think most people would just think like, this is not a fun thing. Uh, but for me, it's like, it's not fun for me to sit there and know that, you know, if I play long enough, uh, the house is going to win, right? Like that to me is like, not very fun. Um, but also, you know, like, uh, you know, so because there's other things you can do in a casino, like, like a lot of people now play machines. Um, and so, and they're not that hard to figure out. Um, you know, and I'm not like a professional machine player at all, but I have sat down at machines where, you know, it looked like, uh, you know, probably there's some edge to be had. And, and I did that, you know, I've done that with my wife and afterwards she said, I will never do that again. You know, that was terrible. So I think (laughs) that it just depends on the kind of person you are. So I want to dig into observations from your podcast and all the different guests you've had on so far. But before we get into some specifics, tell me what your expectations were going into the the podcast itself. Did you have anything either you wrote down or thought as to A, why you might be doing this or B, what you might get out of it? Um, No, not at all. Um, I basically just did it because I was bored. Uh, You know, this like this was the start of the COVID quarantine. And I think I'd been at home for a month or two and I was just bored out of my mind. And, you know, our, like the real estate market was just not very active at that time. So there wasn't really hardly anything to do. And I was, I had always been interested in podcasting, but, um, but I, you know, I have an obsessive personality. So once I started counting cards, I went back and I listened to like every episode of gambling with an edge. And I know you just had uh, Richard Munchkin on before. Um, but I listened to like almost every episode. And so I knew the episodes and I, you know, I have a fairly good memory and I kind of knew where a lot of good stories are. And so I thought for the first episode, um, all I did was really make like a, it was like a tribute to gambling with an edge. That was my first episode. And I thought, well, this will be something at least that will keep me busy. Uh, and it did for a couple months. Um, and so I did that. And then afterwards, uh, you know, I thought, well, I don't know what to do next. And um, I think I maybe suggested to Richard Munchkin that I would make another episode maybe about he and his friends that played blackjack in the eighties. And so then I started doing that, but no, I don't, I didn't really have any expectations slash I don't have any expectations. It's like, you know, kind of a thing that keeps me busy. It's a fun thing to do. It's actually really fun to talk to the people um, because, you know, they have, they're so like, there's such a diversity of the people I've been able to talk to. And that's been really fun. So no, I don't really have any expectations and, you know, I have no idea what, well, I, I, I've told people a couple of times, like the median outcome for this is I make 20 episodes and then find something else that, you know, catches my eye and I start working on something else. Fair enough. I, yeah. I can say similar thoughts actually when I started this and my, my, Median wasn't 20, it was probably three. So I'm slightly above three at this point. So that makes me feel somewhat good. But I found a few different themes out of your show. And I don't know if you'll agree with all of them, but I wanted to get your your sense on some of them. And the first one, which comes along with gambling, you know, the good, the bad, the winning, the losing is is addiction and the, the just the general obsessive nature that comes with the people involved in gambling, whether it's the, you know, like I said, there's someone losing at a table and they couldn't be dragged away um, for anything really or the winning side, which you've obviously talked to, to that sort of group or the, those on that part of the spectrum. So just did you have any um, 
I guess, pre-existing thoughts that the types of people you're going to come and, and have on to the show and, and talk about gambling were going to be in that way? Because even some of the stories of outside of gambling, I think the one I, the one that comes to mind is the, the guy that would um, was basically living in his car and driving around and, and then he'd go, you know, make some money inside the casinos and maybe make some money to stay at a hotel and so on. Like there's some, there's some crazy stories that come out of, of the gambling world. Um, yeah, and actually, uh, it's, it's probably a, a, a good sign. I actually can't tell which of the guests you're talking about because, <laughs> you know, there was one guy, uh, I, I interviewed one guy, um, his name is Dan, and he lives in a van, um, like, you know, one of these converted sprinter vans, and he basically plays connect the dots with casinos, you know, drives to different casinos, counts cards, you know, moves on to the next place. And then um, one of the other people I interviewed was this guy, Mickey Krim. And Mickey Krim is like pretty well known in, you know, like online advantage slot world. Um, he's like maybe the, <laughs> he's probably the internet's most famous uh, slot hustler. Um, and yeah, he was, um, you know, basically living out of a sleeping bag uh, before he found advantage play. And then even after he found it, you know, he basically has lived in hotels his whole life. Um, so, yeah, so there are some very different um, kinds of people that you come in, come across when you start interviewing some of these gamblers. I think, you know, probably the, the one personality trait, like I, I don't know that I've really picked up on a number of personality traits that gamblers might share, but I do think that there's one which is a low, uh, you know, they, they assign a low importance to like societal norms and I, I think that's kind of the one trait um but in terms of um in terms of obsession you know there, there's this book uh, i think it's called the professor the banker and the suicide king um and it's about these famous poker matches that happened you know i don't like 2003 or so something like that and in that book i think that they say that the poker players admit that they're basically just degenerate gamblers who found something that they could win at. And I don't think that that describes all professional gamblers, but I do think that that describes some professional gamblers where they have, um, you know, they have gamble in them and they find an edge that basically lets them become functioning. And I think that, you know, some gamblers that would apply more to, and then some gamblers it would apply less to. But I've also talked to people who, you know, they uh, they will underbet their bankroll because they like the they like that they can sleep at night if they play under what their bankroll would let them bet. So I don't think it's like a universal thing at all, but I think certainly there is something there where there's a tendency to gamble, and then they kind of get it under control by finding an advantage. Yeah. I, I think one thing that's come up a few times is just this idea of having having caught the gambling bug or the disease or however it's described. And and I think you're right. I think some people can, can satisfy that by either being a bookmaker and being in and around all the action and the activity and they get their, their fix, for want of a better term, in that way or they work you know within the field of gambling in some related way and they no longer necessarily need to be um, placing bets all the time to to feel that emotion, and I think it's it's probably true. I think the the functioning part of it's interesting because you know you pick up and drop some of these people into other areas where they don't have an advantage, and you often see it spiral. And you see 
really successful, smart people have those experiences and those examples outside of the worlds that they're good at, whether it's you hear the story of plenty of poker players that try sports and, and haven't done very well. You hear the, the Wall Street guys who have made you know hundreds of millions, tens of millions flying out to Atlantic City or Vegas and staying in casinos and, and obviously playing games that they obviously would know they're not going to have an advantage at and, and are losing. And maybe they're happy to do that and they call it entertainment and you know losing $5 million and some of these whales losing more is, is part of their happy lifestyle. But I think you're right, that, that whole mentality of the gambler and depending on what situation you put them in you can call them two totally different things in one situation they're a top half of one percent you know genius at that gambling game and then you put them in other situations and they're just like the rest of us yeah yeah and and i wouldn't know you know i could never be able to say how prevalent it is but it's just something that you can see exists and i wouldn't know if it's you know, 1% or 99% of gamblers that, that fit into that mold. And the underbetting example, like the, the whole idea of tolerance to risk is an interesting one. And it is fascinating that certain people can go through, um, you know, periods of time overbetting and losing because they're overbetting even with a with an edge and, and they can have that cycle continue. And others who will underbet their edge and like you said, they want to sleep at night. Is that something else that, that came out of the show with even the, I think it comes through mannerisms and it comes through personality, even being able to talk to people. I've found over the years that certain people you can, maybe, you know, you don't get it hundred percent right, but you can say, well, I, you know, I think this person's in this direction or oftentimes I'd finish a podcast episode with someone and my wife would say, you know, how did that go? Or what was that person like? And, and I would imagine there's with some certainty you can put your finger on how they would approach risk and, and what type of tolerance they might have. Yeah. And I think that um, one thing is, you know, like I haven't done an episode about poker yet, but I probably will soon. Um, but I think that you would somewhat have to break things up based on what games they're playing and what the culture is around that game, because, you know, there are some, uh, you know, there are some gambling endeavors where, like for instance, poker, poker players almost universally overbet their bankroll, right? Uh, because they're, they know that getting staked by other poker players is a part of the culture, right? So, so they might overbet their own personal bankroll knowing that um, they can get somebody to take a piece of them and then they can get back in the game, right? Whereas um, for blackjack players, I think it would be a lot less common to overbet your bankroll because they know that it's just not going to be. Um, it, it, so if they overbet their bankroll and let's say go broke, they could get someone to stake them. But the problem there is now when you go out and start playing again, you have an investor you have to pay. Uh, you have to play at a table limit where you're going to draw attention. And it's just not going to work out that well because you're going to get, you know, you'll get barred. Uh, playing at the higher limit so that you can also pay your investor. So it's just, it doesn't have the same, um, you know, the risk is quite a bit different than for a poker player. So I think that different gamblers will have a different view of that risk and, and a different view of how much they should, um, you know, what percentage of their bankroll they should be betting. But then also, you know, I've talked to, um, you know, Bob Dancer, he was a video poker player. He is a video poker player. And he made a lot of his money in the 90s 
Um, and he basically admits that in a lot of cases he was overbetting his bankroll. And sometimes he knew he was overbetting his bankroll, but he just thought, well, I'll take a shot. And if it works out, then great. And if it doesn't work out and I lose, you know, I'll set a stop loss limit for myself um, and then I'll quit. Um, and then sometimes he was just overbetting his bankroll because he, at that time, they didn't quite understand how much variance was in the game and how to even calculate how much bankroll you needed. So it's, I mean, I think it's a pretty interesting um, topic because, you know, all, every, um, you know, if you talk to any professional gambler, they would say, uh, well, you know, you have to follow the math. You have to um, go where the numbers take you. You have to be disciplined. And then, you know, and not very much time after that, they would admit that at some point they've overbet their bankroll, which is essentially admitting that, in addition to following the math and being disciplined, they were also hoping to get lucky. You know, I think that that is like, and it's in, you know, maybe it's not in every gambler story, but it's in a lot of gambler stories. Yeah, I think absolutely. The, the, the human element of it all, because you can usually distill some of this or even all of this when it comes to certain, you know, closed system games where there is an answer for a lot of things. I mean, maybe not in, in sports and horse racing and stuff like that, but a lot of these games, there is a, a generally correct answer or best practice. And yeah, the, the human element always seems to creep in no matter who it is or, or what it is or where it is. There's always a, an element of that. And I remember hearing Bob talk about that stuff and just thinking like there was probably scenarios and, you know, he can obviously answer this better than I could, but there, there might have been scenarios where he would have put himself in a position to be either substantially wiped out or, or fully wiped out or or go back to close to zero in some instances. And I think, you know, that risk tolerance is kind of going back to what you were talking about before, where some people are just, you know, very willing to, to go down those paths sometimes, even when they have an advantage, even when they're doing a lot of things right, they'll still allow themselves to be a little loose in, in certain instances. And, you know, I think it just goes to the point that there is, you know, scientific style ways of doing this stuff. And, and always the human element seems to want to creep back in because of the bug, of the disease, of the, the obsessive nature of, of gamblers, depending on what situation you put them in. Well, and I, I guess um, another thing that I think is probably worth mentioning is that uh, there's probably a difference just in terms of the, like, the mentality of playing the actual game. So like if you talk to like there is no ego involved in beating the game of blackjack, right? Because it's so mechanical uh, what you do. And however, and so, yeah, maybe you would have um, maybe the idea of beating the house, you would get off on that a little bit, but, but if you play poker, well, now the person you're beating is like sitting across the table from you or sitting on the other side of the computer. And so there's, you know, there's going to be ego involved in that. And I think that those, the, the different ways that that would work would also change the way that you saw taking a shot. So for instance, I think, I, I don't know, I'll be interested to hear um, when eventually I get to a poker episode, but, but I think the idea of achievement and achieving a higher level. So going from something like, you know, playing 10, 20, no limit hold'em to playing 3000, 6000, no limit hold'em. Um, that the way that that would impact, you know, your perception of your skills would be very important and would probably make you more likely to um, want to take shots to prove to yourself that you could do those things. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the one other thing I wanted to ask around this topic is, do you get a true sense of why you think these people are happy to follow this lifestyle, let's say? Because in many instances, people will say, yeah, I do it for the money. You know, money is a scoreboard. If I have more money than you or someone else gambling or everyone else in the state, city, country, whatever it is, then I can say objectively that I'm successful. But there's plenty of examples where people aren't living in nine bedroom homes, you know, to the opposite end where they're still happy to live in a hotel room or, or, or sleep in the back of their car on the road, even when they might have, you know, enough money from gambling winnings. I sense there's some element of this where money isn't the main or, or, or key driver to a lot of this. And there's something else at play that allows someone to, to grind their way through, you know, that example you mentioned before of dots on the map to casino to casino. Like that doesn't, it's not a splashy, sexy way to live. And if it's not for the money or for the, the fame, or you're not beating another poker player or, or, or beating, you know, the NFL markets, then there's got to be something else intuitively involved or, or some, you know, human nature element. And maybe it's the, you know, some of the stuff you talked about that, that is interesting to you earlier on with being able to work on things and solve problems and tasks and, Maybe you hate the casinos and the pit boss and the authority that comes with those guys, you know, standing around having the ability to, to shut you down or turn you away. Do you get a sense that some gamblers are, are driven in a non-monetary way? Well, I, I always say, I mean, even before I did this podcast, I always say that money is not money is a money is not a sufficient explanation for why people do anything. Uh, and I think that a lot of the stories in, in these episodes really prove that because, and gambling is a great example because it seems like it should be about money, right? Like it's a pretty, um, gambling crystallizes, uh, the relationship between like prediction and money so well. However, I think that, um, you know, if you look at so many of these people could have made a lot more money doing something else. Um, and maybe some of them couldn't, you know, like it's like, uh, you know, some of the some gamblers have done so well from gambling that, you know, probably they couldn't have made more money doing something else. But a lot of these people could have made more money doing something else. And so I think that um, for a lot of them, uh, you know, not not having a boss is a pretty valuable thing. And I think that for a lot of them, it, it comes down to that is basically, you know, there's there's nobody who. Uh, is going to tell you what to do and you can work as hard or not as hard as you want to on any problem that you have. Um, so I do think that that, I, I don't think that, um, you know, I, I don't think that the money really is a very good explanation for why uh, gamblers do what they do. Another area that, that pops up is a lot of the foundational stories. Oh, and actually, um, you know, I, I had one more thing to sure mention about that is I think that if you look at it, you can see the signs that um, some of these um, professional gamblers get into gambling thinking, well, this will be the thing, this will be like the thing that I've always wanted my life to be. And they have some success and uh, do very well for themselves. And then eventually figure out that there are other things that they want their life to be. Uh, you know, like, um, you know, one of the card counters I talked to, he's, you know, he, he was like obsessed with card counting, did really well um, in, in his first year, got up to the point where he, he could bet table max 
um, you know, really anywhere he went, which is, I mean, you have to have a pretty large bankroll to be betting table max. Um, and then decided that he wanted to have, uh, you know, a small company. I think, I can't remember. I think he might be selling coffee, like, um, but, but something like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, other, like, uh, I interviewed this guy, Daryl Purpose, and he, you know, said, you know, when he was in his early 20s, he was obsessed with card counting. And when he was in his 30s, he was obsessed with being a musician. So I think that some of these people get into it thinking, like, this will be the thing that will make my life what I want it to be. And then I think that some of them realize that, no, actually, there's other things that I want my life to be as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that hollowness or emptiness of, well, I'm beating this game, I'm beating this market, I'm beating this sport or whatever it is, can expire for some people. And I, I've heard plenty of people talk about the idea of not being able to add anything back to society, really, when it comes to gambling. A lot of times, it's there's no value add there that they can point to and rely on and say, well, this is worthwhile because of this. Because like you said, if, if money's not enough or money's not a, a primary factor or main component, then there's not a lot left behind always. And it probably goes to your examples there where certain people are happy to walk away, even if it's a plus EV benefit to their, you know, their bank type approach. Um, but at the end of the day, there's so much more that goes into it for them. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the foundational stories, uh, at least through your show and in talking to other people in terms of finding their edge, it seems like they went to a library and, and printed out a lot of materials and, read about it and then found their way through different opportunities or they learned how to count cards and, and maybe they spent a bit of time practicing and joined a group or all those types of things. But I think if you ask the average person on the street, they would say it'd be too hard to figure out how to find an edge. And and, and I, I think it sort of made me realize that maybe the, the opportunity and assessing what areas you can make money isn't necessarily going to be the hardest thing in in areas like casino play, because I think there's a there's certainly a stigma out there that you cannot ever possibly win inside of a casino. But I think your show at least opened up the idea that that may not be the biggest problem is, uh, you know, finding that edge. It, it's more down the, the other things that can stop you from making some money. Yeah, well, I think it would, I think it's going to depend on what you're doing. Um, because, you know, you can walk into any, almost any casino and start counting cards. Um, and they're, you know, at some point, somewhere between 15 minutes and a few hours, they'll figure out what you're up to uh, and they'll tell you to leave. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, that that that's not hard. But for some of the other things that these people do, um, you know, it is a lot harder. Uh, and they're, they have to either break down the math of the game, which isn't easy. You know, some of these, um, you know, they call them carnival games. Uh, you know, the math isn't super easy to break break down. And so they have to break down the math and figure out where the advantage is or, um, or they have to figure out, you know, how to get some piece of information that the casino doesn't want you to have, like what the dealer's whole card is. Um, and so that's not going to be super easy, but I think the thing that I've been most impressed with, um, and this is really listening to gambling with an edge. And then some of the people that I've talked to is the amount of creativity that goes into these plays. Uh, and the one that I think is really, every time I think about it, I'm like, wow, I, <laughs> I really can't believe that they did that. But, um, you know, back in the eighties, they had this thing that was based on learning how to cut a certain number of cards. And I don't know if you've heard it all about this, but, but basically the dealer would shuffle the cards, you know, this would be like a single deck game. 
the dealer would shuffle the cards. You know, today they cover up that bottom card. They put a cut card over it so you can't see it. But at this time, they, they would flash the bottom card to the players. The players at the table would figure out, okay, if it's a five or a six, we're going to cut that to the 13th card and stick it to the dealer's down card. Um, and so they would sit in their apartments and learn how to cut exactly 13 cards so they could cut a, a, a bad card to the dealer. Um, and that to me is like, number one is it's creative to think like, you know, we're going to um, take advantage of the fact that they're flashing this bottom card to us. But also, it, you know, it would take quite a bit of practice to learn how to cut that. So that's the one to me where I think like, you know, these people really uh, have sort of scary creative minds um, and a, a good amount of obsession to learn how to actually follow through on this advantage. Um, so that, that's kind of the thing is I think that it requires a good amount of creativity. And then you also have to be rigorous in assessing whether or not this advantage that you're planning on is actually real, because it would be very easy. You know, there are like, uh, bad ideas for advantage play out there too, that involve, you know, getting a look at a card that's not that valuable. Um, and so you, you would still have to be rigorous to determine whether the, the edge that you're planning on having is going to be a real one. Well, it, it reminds me of a, I think it was David Blaine on Joe Rogan's podcast talking about, and I have no idea if this is true. I, I'm guessing there's a chance that it's not true or a good chance or, or whatever, but a kid who from an early age had a roulette table in his house, um, sorry, a craps table in his house and, and learned how to throw to die to land on certain numbers on purpose after practicing, I think for 10 or 15 years and then having a job in a casino and, and working on a craps table. Uh, and then he's out there now basically rolling whatever numbers he wants on a craps table, which, you know, it seems far fetched, but I think if that's on one end of the scale um, and maybe, you know, basic, you know, strategy or counting cards on the other end, there's so much in between there. And it seems like, you know, there's so many interesting people out there who are trying to find all sorts of different edges that we would probably never stumble across and think would be crazy and whatever else, but they're creative enough to, to come up with lo with a lot of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, I mean, the crafts example is a great example of one where, um, you know, that's a very obvious idea to, you know, try to get good at rolling dice. Uh, you know, there's probably a lot of people out there that uh, would think that it's possible um, but then the difference between is that a real advantage or is that, or are you just bullshitting yourself? Uh, I think that is where the real advantage players are made. Um, and there have been a number of guys over the years who have said, uh, you know, yeah, we believe that we can beat craps. And, you know, it, the list of, of credible stories is a very, very short list or maybe close to non-existent. And so, you know, I think that a lot of the advantage players think that really probably craps um, beating it that way is not the way that you would beat it. But, you know, by rolling, um, learning how to roll the dice is not the way that you would beat craps. It's fascinating. And like I said, I have no idea how true it is, but it, it you know, gets the juices flowing. So one final area I wanted to talk to you about was just the real world and, you know, taking these types of people that you talk to and I talk to and, and how, they operate and function within their own sort of gambling worlds, but you know, using that in real life and in the real world, have you found many ideas or concepts or strategies or approaches from listening to these people talk for, for hours and 
and and trying to apply them or you know are there things we can take or learn from these types of people and and benefit from them in in non-gambling ways yeah so i think there's probably um well first let me just give like a concrete idea like this would be like if you're looking for an easy way to get an advantage here would be a way to do it um and that is uh you know, very often people think about beating the actual game. Um, so like if it's, you know, becoming good at poker or learning how to count cards or becoming good at sports betting or whatever it might be. So they're become very focused on beating the game and put a lot of time and energy into beating the game when they might be a lot better off trying to figure out how to beat the marketing department at whatever it is that they're doing. You know, so if it's a casino, you know, that casino probably has, Um, promotions and things that could be targeted Um, or if it's like credit cards you know that's you know you're basically taking advantage of the marketing department there Um, and really some of the like the biggest and best wins ever have come from taking on the marketing department not the actual game so um, you know when when internet gambling first came out uh, you know I had this guy Daryl Purpose he and he and Richard Munchkin I think he was doing this as well at the time but you know, they were basically, I think, taking advantage of the deposit bonuses on these gaming sites. And Daryl told me that he bought a laptop and made a million dollars sitting in a Starbucks. He, he didn't have Wi-Fi wow. at his house. <laughs> he didn't have Wi-Fi at his house, but he made a million dollars going to Starbucks to uh, take advantage of these um, these internet casinos. Uh, and that is, you know, you can almost go through the list of big uh, wins and almost, not always, but very often find that actually it was the marketing department that was being taken advantage of. Um, You know, there was this guy, Don Johnson in Atlantic City, and, you know, he had won so much from Atlantic Atlantic City casinos that I think he got the CEO of the Tropicana in Atlantic City fired. Um, I mean, I think that's how much he won. It was like 12 or $13 million dollars. Um, but the way he did it was taking advantage of loss rebates. Uh, and then, you know, I just did this episode with these uh, travel hackers and, you know, they just go after the the points and miles promotions from these credit cards and the travel companies. So all, just in terms of a concrete example of what people could look at to try to get an advantage is look at the marketing department and try to think about what are the ways that this promotion um, could give me an advantage in whatever. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Yeah, so that's a concrete example. But then I think also in terms of just mentality, the one thing that I've noticed that um, that uh, gamblers could probably uh, teach the rest of us a lesson about is learning how to take your licks. Um, because, you know, they, they have to learn how to lose. And um, so over time, you know, they're able to uh, develop, you know, thick skin. From, from learning how to lose. And so learning how to take your lumps, I think, is a, is a big thing. And also uh, learning how to do the hard thing. So the hard thing is not uh, to learn how to count cards. That's, like, pretty easy. Um, the hard thing is, you know, how do you deal with uh, when you're on the road for a month and you're staying in crappy hotel rooms and you're losing? You know, that's the hard thing. And so I think for most things that we do, uh, we mistake the easy thing for the hard thing. But I think that gamblers really are very good at identifying the hard thing and then they become good at the hard thing. So that, that would be the other thing. Awesome. So the podcast is called Risk of Ruin. 
and it's everywhere where you get your podcast at half kelly on twitter john thank you very much for coming on the show it's a pleasure to chat do you have any uh upcoming episodes you can share a sneak peek on or any broader plans or is it just one week at a time um yeah i'm still trying to decide what what the next episode is going to be so if anybody had any suggestions for episodes um you know reach out to me on twitter or you can email the show at or excuse me risk of ruin pod at gmail.com amazing john it's been a pleasure and thanks again for your time thank you 